Good morning and welcome to the Ride On Fundraising Masterclass and Podcast. I'm Lindsay Jordan here with Jonathan Weber Mendez, my right hand man, fundraising guru, um, who is joining us from Fundraising Palooza in Omaha, Nebraska today. Hey, if hey. you're not familiar with Fundraising Palooza, um, we highly recommend you go check it out at some point. It has a super fun name, but it's also a, just a really cool event. Great time to connect with lots of other fundraisers. And I'm super glad that you're still able to join us this morning, Jonathan. So welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So today we are going to focus on corporate philanthropy. But before we jump into that, I want to give just a little bit of housekeeping here because this is kind of a unique podcast. As I mentioned, this is a masterclass in our podcast. So what that means is that we have masterclass folks on the call with us today. And these are folks who actually join us to be in this space to ask their questions live of our panel, of our hosts, of our guests. Um, and to, to ask your questions today, all you have to do is drop it into the chat. Uh, I don't know if you could see Kara Thornton on your screen, but Kara is our incredible marketing manager and she will be fielding your questions, getting them to us. So as we move through the morning, we'll be answering your questions live as we move along. So don't be shy. Don't feel like you have to wait till the end. Go ahead and drop those directly into the chat uh, and we will be excited to get them um, discussed and on the table today. Uh, our podcast audience, of course, is the audience that joins us after the fact. So anybody who couldn't make the call today uh, or anybody who is, you know, wanting to listen in at any point in time. So with all of that said, that's kind of who we are, what we're doing today, what our podcast is about. Our podcast is, of course, about fundraising. Right on Fundraising is a fundraising company. We specialize specifically in raising dollars for nonprofits. But really, we also look at kind of the practical side of fundraising and where that syncs up with what we like to call community-centric fundraising. If you have not checked out community-centric fundraising before, highly recommend you give it a Google, go to their website. It's an entire organization. As fundraisers, we have heard a lot in the past about donor-centric fundraising. Community-centered fundraising is exactly what it sounds like. It centers the community and intersects in a lot of beautiful ways with corporate philanthropy, which is what we're going to talk about today. Before we dive into a little mini session to make sure everybody's on the same page with corporate philanthropy, I want to give you an opportunity to meet our special guest today, who I'm very excited to have with us. And Jonathan, I'm going to kick it over to you. Thank you so much, Lindsay. So it is my pleasure to introduce to you Jessica Gilmore. Jessica is an Oklahoma native and a community advocate seeking to transform corporate philanthropy as a resource partner and a community convener. Managing all the day-to-day -day aspects of corporate giving on behalf of Express Employment International, she collaborates with Philanthropic Community Committee of Express to review funding requests and distribute dollars in the areas of community enhancement, education, and health and human services. Jessica also oversees the management and administration of Express's private foundation, Expressions of Hope, which provides relief assistance to employees of Express in times of crisis or need. Jessica's areas of service include Central Oklahoma's Funders Roundtable, Exponent Philanthropy, Leadership Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma Center for Nonprofits, and Remerge of Oklahoma County. 
Jessica is also a self-proclaimed Diz nerd <laughs> and has experience training Disney cast members at their stores. So what an exciting, well-rounded uh, experience. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Jessica. Thank you so much for the invitation, Jonathan and Lindsay. I'm happy to be with you guys today. Yes, we're hoping for a magical day. Huh? Oh, no. Well done. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and dive into some data. Um, Dis nerd, data nerd, we're going to nerd out all the way around today around corporate philanthropy. Uh, I want to start, you know, we kind of like to start these, uh, the masterclass podcast by making sure everybody just has the same language and the same information. Um, and one of the things I wanted to talk about is really just to kind of take a quick look at what has been going on with corporate philanthropy over the last decade, because there's some pretty interesting stuff. So Giving USA is what we use as our primary data point. Giving USA, if you're not familiar, is kind of like the annual report for the entire nonprofit sector and gives lots of really, really great information about what's happening, why it's happening, what's going to happen next, gives us all kinds of really good data points to look at. And uh, if you follow along with Giving USA, then you know that just a couple weeks ago, um, they put out a report, a super depressing report, <laughs> that said 2022 overall giving decreased by 10%. It was the worst year of giving since the Great Recession and one of the top four worst years since they started keeping track of the survey information sometime in the 1950s. So a very significant downturn for philanthropy last year, which is, of course, one of the reasons why we want to talk specifically about corporate philanthropy, what's happening in that space to kind of look at the trends and the changes and how we can respond to them. So to give you an idea of what corporate philanthropy typically means to the entire sector, for a very long time, corporate philanthropy has held pretty steady at somewhere between four and 6% of total giving. So if you think about the whole pie, all the giving that happens, um, and typically, uh, well, I shouldn't say typically, it always, individual giving is the largest piece of that pie. It has been decreasing every single year. That's part of why we had the big 10% drop in 2022, but still it represents more than 65% of the entire pie, individual giving. So if you're thinking about the pie, you've got about 65% to individuals. I want to say somewhere between 20 and 30% on foundations, maybe 10-ish percent in bequests, and then the rest is in corporate giving. <clears throat> I hope someone was not keeping track of that because I did not even try to attempt to make that equal 100, but you kind of get an idea of what the pie looks like. <laughs> um, so... In, so some so interesting news, some interesting things about corporate philanthropy. Corporate philanthropy was holding on pretty steady at around $18.5 billion until 2016. And in 2016, it took a nice big jump of about $2 billion and then continued to grow on top of that. So in 2019, it had grown all the way from 18 and a half up to over $21 billion. So there was some really nice sector growth happening in corporate philanthropy. Then, of course, the pandemic hit in 2020, and we saw 
corporate philanthropy take a nosedive all the way down, <clears throat> excuse me, to $0.8 billion. So a $5 billion decrease basically uh, in the pandemic. In 2021, we saw a total market correction, $21.08 billion. So we jumped back up to the $21 billion mark. And we saw in 2021, some really interesting stuff happen in giving. It wasn't just that corporate philanthropy jumped back up uh, to where it had been pre-pandemic. How corporate philanthropy was giving changed pretty drastically. Uh, With the murder of George Floyd, with a lot of conversations around uh, social justice uh, and a real emphasis in Black Lives Matters and other groups, we saw in 2021 almost a 50-50 split in how corporate philanthropists were giving with 50% of funding going to social justice and 50% going to direct needs. Now we're going to talk today a little bit about how that's changed because that percentage breakdown is not the same now as it was in 2021. But in 2022, we saw corporate philanthropy largely hang on the same right there at that $21 billion mark. So from a monetary standpoint, we have seen organic growth in corporate philanthropy um, from 2016 to 17. We saw nice growth all the way through to 2019. We saw that uh, downward turn in 2020 that was to be expected with um, the pandemic. We saw a bounce back and a reconfiguring of how corporate philanthropy was giving in 2021. And so what does that mean, right? What does that mean for for the years to come? That's actually a lot of change to happen in just 10 years. Um, before we get into what is to come, because lots of exciting questions for our panelists there today. Uh, but I want to remind everybody, especially if you're new to corporate philanthropy, how these dollars typically come to nonprofit organizations. So obviously there are event sponsorships. That's a big piece. There are matching donations. So when um, an employee makes a gift, sometimes the company will match that gift or even double it. In-kind goods and services are still really critical to a lot of nonprofit organizations. Grants, if the corporation has a foundation attached to it, they can sometimes make grants. Volunteer time. So the employees actually showing up and you know, bagging the groceries or delivering meals or all kinds of different things. Cash for volunteer time, which I super love because that is right in line with community-centered fundraising and this idea that time has the same value as cash. There are a number of corporations who will actually, they have a an hourly rate that they calculate and they have their employees turn in their volunteer time. And at the end of the year, the corporation cuts a check for the amount of time that a volunteer spent with a certain nonprofit. And then, of course, access to employees, being able to go in and do those lunch and learns from a programmatic standpoint, being able to talk to employees about a nonprofit's mission um, is is also a benefit, Uh, maybe not a monetary benefit, but sometimes a really, really significant benefit from a lot of nonprofits. So, That is all of the context that I have to give. We are now all on the same page. We know what's been going on with philanthropy for the past 10 years and how corporations typically like to give. And with all of that said, Jonathan, I'm tired of hearing my own voice. Why don't you kick us off today? Yes, thank you so much. And I really appreciate that context because, 
You know, right on fundraising, our, our primary mission is creating philanthropic equity. And I think so many of us, when we think of philanthropy, we think of like the ultra rich and the Bill Gates and all of those people. But things like individual donations and corporate philanthropy provide some diversity in philanthropy that I think lends itself to equity. And I know that Jessica is not some ultra wealthy person in a white tower doling out money. She is part of the community as well. And I think that that's really important to know that a lot of corporate philanthropy isn't coming from these huge, uh, huge companies. It's coming from people in the communities that are working with their company to make philanthropy and their communities more equitable and a better place to uh, live and work. So with that being said, Jessica, I just want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your work and express employment and how you uh, exercise philanthropic equity. Sure. Thank you so much. Well, to start, Express is a staffing company. We are celebrating our 40th anniversary this year. Almost 900 offices fully franchised in five countries, U.S., Canada, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. So for my particular role, I am based out of our headquarters here in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where the majority of our funding that I oversee stays, lives, gives back to the community where our headquarters employees live and do life, just like Jonathan referenced. I appreciate that. From our franchisee standpoint, I provide a resource toolbox and assistance with anything that they want to do in their community, but we truly believe that they're going to know their community better than I'm going to know their community. So from a franchise standpoint, they're the ones making those funding decisions in the local communities. So for members of your audience that maybe have an express office in their neighborhood, reach out to them directly. They will. They would love to get engaged with you guys on some level as Lindsay referenced, we we look at everything, whether it's in kind or volunteer hours or a sponsorship. There's lots of opportunities to connect with our franchise offices across North America. From Oklahoma City, as Jonathan mentioned in my bio, we give in three focus areas, primarily community enhancement, which for Oklahoma City could include Scissor Tail Park, our local ballet or Philharmonic, education, for us being a company that puts people to work on a daily basis, we are really focused actually on career tech education, uh, primarily anything that is workforce readiness, job preparedness. We love focusing on that type of giving and removing the obstacles or barriers that adult learners have to going back to school and getting those certifications. And then our third primary category for Funding is a very broad one, obviously, health and human services that can include everything from justice involvement to homelessness to victim services, you name it. We cover a little bit of everything in that category, and it's broad for a good reason. I love that. I, I love the decentralized nature of the giving to, to take advantage of all the communities you are in. I'm curious, though, is there an aspect of of Express's philanthropy that either you or Express is most proud of? Uh, what what really gets you out of bed in the morning and makes you excited about what you do? 
having employees stop by my office and say, I volunteered with so-and-so, or I was here talking to somebody and they mentioned this organization, or I referred them to an organization. Just the fact that they're getting to know that these organizations exist in our community is a big win for me. When our CEO stops in my office and goes, hey, I attended this, or I was able to engage with this organization, that's a win. Um, In my book, it's just kind of this Mr. Rogers mentality. It's about being a good neighbor and doing the right thing. It's not unlike some corporations, and it's not a bad thing. I'm not bad-mouthing any of my colleagues. It's not always about the branding aspect. It's, It's genuinely about doing the right thing. And so if I get to get up in the morning and engage with another nonprofit organization and continue building that relationship, whether Express is funding them or not, I'm simply connecting them to another organization or possible funder or watching a collaboration happen, you know, at the end of the day, I can, I can sleep well because it's been a good day. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. So I want to dive back into those numbers Mm -hmm. um, that we were, we were talking about earlier. So I think what we learned from that is that, you know, corporate philanthropy has really for the most part, remained pretty steady over the last decade. Um, And it's kind of hovered right around that $20 billion mark. The really big significant difference was um, 2020. Um, So what major differences do you see today in 2023 versus when there was that big downturn in 2020? Do you see that there's any threat of something something like that happening again? Or do you feel like those were unique circumstances and we are in a completely different market at this point. Obviously unique circumstances from a certain standpoint. However, speaking for Express, my annual philanthropic budget is based on prior year sales. A lot of corporations are based that way. So if sales took a dip, budget's not going to be as great. My budget this year is really nice. Sales last year were good. I'm watching our sales trends this year for 2023 and they're not they're not hot. They're not hitting goals. Yeah. So I'm anticipating that for 2024 my budget's actually going to be significantly less. Not in my control, nothing I can do, but I can make the best of what I do have and try to stretch it as best as possible. Some organizations will set a certain dollar amount saying, "Hey, year over year as a corporation, this is what we're going to commit to giving." Some base it on sales like Express does. Others pocket that. They can, it's a evergreen amount, if you will. Mine is based on a calendar year, January 1 through December 31. And I have to spend down. I'm not allowed to carry anything over. So a good question for those of you that are engaging with corporations and corporate funders is ask, you know, what's what's your year? Are you a calendar year? Or are you a fiscal year? Are you a set budget? Do you pocket your dollars? Engage in those type of questions because we're happy to answer them. And it also just kind of clarifies up front. It sets the expectation. And I think it's fair to you and it's fair to us as a corporation to have that type of dialogue right off the bat. I'm glad that you mentioned that about having um, a budget that's really largely based on sales. Mm-hmm. I don't have data around how many companies companies uh, share that um, kind of philosophy, but I feel like it's just about every major corporation we talk to is basing their budget on sales. Um, 
I, I think it's really um, organizations that have Corp B status or they have some other kind of specific philanthropic overlap that have like a set amount every year that they know they're going to give like a Tom's or Ben and Jerry's or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what type of metrics do you typically take into account when you're planning or when you're getting that budget for the year? So do you get a budget and it's a clean slate? Or do you get a budget and because of some of the things your employees are engaged on, you already have a couple of things earmarked in your mind? Clean slate. Clean slate because that's a fair way to operate. Um, I actually am really, really fortunate. I do get to manage the day-to-day aspects. But as Jonathan also mentioned in my bio, I work with a committee. I have five employees of Express, full-time employees who give above and beyond their roles here to volunteer their time for a three-year timeframe. And it's a rotating timeframe. So I've got one committee member that terms off this year. I've got two that'll term off next year. And we keep bringing in fresh faces and new perspectives. But that committee of five is the one that looks at everything and says yes, no, and how much with a little bit of guidance. I just kind of get to be Switzerland and answer the questions and, and guide where necessary. Um, but no, we we start with a clean slate. There's obviously, there's going to be organizations that we do work with and fund year over year because we've had great experience with them. The programming is good and we want to continue to support that. But we're also really excited to bring in some new organizations every year. We also don't at least from Expresses, and again, this is a question to engage with corporate funders, is we don't earmark, hey, we have three funding categories. We're going to put X percent in this bucket and X percent in this bucket and X percent in this bucket. We also don't say, hey, we're going to budget X amount per quarter because we do have four quarterly funding cycles. It's it's just kind of an evolving uh, numbers game. So if in first quarter that committee says, hey, let's spend this much money, I go, okay, this is what we have left for the rest of the year. And we just kind of, we work with it, but it's it's worked. And it's something that we do always reevaluate on an annual basis. Do we want to give larger amounts to a fewer number of organizations? Do we want to give smaller amounts to a larger number of organizations? Do we want to start pocketing those dollars but why break, uh, you know, what, why fix what's not broken? Yeah. Forgive me. So it's, you know, it's always a process that again, we evaluate on an annual basis just to see the thoughts and what's working and what's not working, because if it's not working, we certainly want to correct that and make it as user-friendly as possible to the organizations we're trying to work with. But at least from Express's perspective, that's that's not how we're operating right now. Again, I'm speaking only for Express. I can't speak for everyone. I do have some colleagues in the community that do have to earmark X amount for sponsorships and X amount for program funding or challenge grants or whatever that looks like. Um, but it's, it's a, again, a good question to engage with your corporate funders. I, Jonathan, I feel like we need an equity bell for like every time I'm like, yes, that's <laughs> That's it. That's equity. That's what it looks like. Um, I love that um, every year you come in with a a totally clean slate. I think that that's awesome. I have some questions about the committee uh, because I know that there are other um, uh, corporations that use the committee model as well. I'm also stepping all over Jonathan because I know he's got questions for you too. (laughs) So many questions. I feel like my brain is going. (laughs) What did you jump in? Go ahead. An hour. I... 
Okay, so I I also love the committee model. I think that once again, Thank that you. screams equity. And Kara, yes, we need a soundboard or something that we can hit when we get equity cues or something <laughs> like that. We'll do morning radio show style. I love it. Uh, for that. I'm also curious about with the committee and with the sales-based budget is, and this is something that happens in philanthropy a lot because even private foundations, you know, they're amount to giving is based on the stock market and the economy and how much money they have to give. Same as corporate doing it based on on their revenue. But that also means that when things are on a downturn, there is less money to give. But as we know, when the economy is on a downturn, that is when people need support the most. So it's kind of this weird catch-22. And I wonder how much the committee takes that into account that we have limited money. So should we focus on health and human services and making sure people's primary needs are met? And how much, well, I'll just leave it at that. How much does that conversation come into play? I'll, I'll leave my other thousand questions for. for no, that's a great question. In fact, that's something we actually visited last year when we're still kind of coming out of that 2020, 2021 um, downturn and people are starting to return full-time to the workforce or workplace, even physically, no longer ha- working from home or now having that hybrid model, what that looks like. And and actually, I really love it because our, our committee stepped up and did a little bit more in the area of community enhancement, believe it or not. You're talking health and human services. And when we talk health and human services, we talk about mental health. But what we forget to look at is public spaces or our arts community or opportunities to get out and re-engage with people again, or just take a breath. And that actually falls into community enhancement when you think about it for us, at least, because that's parks and museums and other arts organizations. And so our committee really did kind of step back and look at that and go, you know, mental health is a big deal right now. And there's definitely areas to fund in health and human services, but we also need to take into consideration that mental health can also be these community enhancement spaces or these education opportunities. And so this, again, is where I'm just really thrilled with the people that have said yes to being on this committee and the fresh perspective that they bring in, because this is not their day-to-day. Their day-to-day is accounting and marketing and taxes and human resources and and education and whatever that looks like for our company. And so to have them bring in that perspective and be open to these conversations and discussions is just a huge blessing. But to your point of saying not everybody has a committee, not everybody has a me at their uh, corporation, a lot of funding is based out of community community engagement, and and it is about branding. And so maybe it's not quite as diversified in that respect. But fingers crossed, that's my soapbox. Like one of these days, we're going to get more more outside of the community engagement aspect of or community relations aspect of corporate funding and and really look at what corporate funding should be. Well, I let's take a dive into that, Jessica, because okay. you've mentioned that. And I think that we can we are obviously really excited and appreciate the more sophisticated and nuanced approach to um, uh, allocating those dollars. But branding is still a part of yeah. corporate philanthropy. So walk us through how 
a fundraiser could best navigate a conversation with someone like you or in your position to figure out, am I dealing with a corporation where branding is really the priority or am I dealing with a corporation that is going to have a different approach, a more nuanced approach to how they give out their dollars? What questions should be asked? Well, actually, I'm going to start by by telling you how to quickly decipher who you're dealing with and what they're doing. If you're dealing with community relations, that's their marketing and communications department. That's branding. If you are dealing with somebody very specific to community engagement, corporate giving, that's that's funding your programs. That's not always about branding. Branding is a perk in that aspect. Um, Obviously, there's going to be opportunities where we as a company express will sponsor something for the branding aspect for that return on investment. Again, though, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about your programming. So when you're engaging in those conversations about whether or not branding versus actual kind of funding, program funding, if you're not being asked by that corporation or that funder, what's your greatest need right now? That's also a cue that they're looking at branding. Mm. That's great. Those are really great um, kind of tips and tricks. Um, before we move on, because we're getting really close to uh, an area that I, I really want to take a deep dive into. But before we get there, I want to back up just a little bit and talk about the actual calendar itself. So you mentioned that you kind of have this bucket of funding at the beginning of the year. And you don't have like a certain amount that's allotted for each quarter. So just organically, how important do you think it is for a nonprofit to make their ask earlier in the year and to know what your fiscal year looks like? Again, this is going to vary by who you're talking to. For us personally, because we're focusing on the organization and their need, the timing is, is up to them. Really, truly. Um, we we kind of shift. I mean, quarter to quarter, it's not necessarily like, hey, the first quarter of the year is the best time to ask. Not necessarily. Second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. I can't say there's a real sweet spot for us. It, it fluctuates. We get anywhere from 35 to 85 applications per quarter. And I, I can't predict that. I can tell you fourth quarter is probably our heaviest, ah. which is not always ideal because we're at the end of our funding bucket. Third quarter maybe is the sweet spot. I, I just, I don't know because again, when I'm engaging with the nonprofit, I'm like, Hey, what's your timing? What works for you guys? I'll give the Oklahoma city national memorial as an example for those that know Oklahoma City well, or if you're a runner, because it is a big deal, the Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon happens every April here in Oklahoma City. And we're really proud to be a part of that because that takes place in April and there is some branding attached to it. And there are other moving parts and aspects. We actually ask them to apply almost a full year in advance because then we're securing our funding and our sponsorship, but they're able to move forward with their timeline of okay, we have marketing pieces in place and we have registration aspect here and lots of moving parts on their end. So that's why timing's going to vary. Uh, and that's what it looks like for us here at Express at least. 
Super interesting. I think the third quarter is typically what I've heard in the past of, of if you're going to pick a quarter, pick a third, pick the third quarter. But that I think that what you have highlighted here for us is that an organization that is less focused on branding and more focused on being a good partner in the community, um, the timing is going to be more about your conversation. It's yeah. very much like cultivating a major donor, right? It's yes. more about um, the relationship and determining what's what's kind of mutually beneficial then than the right time, air quotes. Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, I, I need to know more about this. So first off, great <laughs> shout out to the Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon, one of the most meaningful marathons, and you get free bananas at Gorilla Hill. So for all you runners listening, get to Oklahoma City, run that marathon. But I know me personally, you know, I'm I'm not the best budgeter in the world, but my kids know that payday is the best time to ask for money. So I'm curious how these conversations work because you don't have a crystal ball and you don't know if there's going to be some emergency in the third quarter. But what if you get all these great asks in the first quarter? Like, how do you decide, like, no, we can't give all our money away right now because we do have to save. Do you have, like, do you give it 25% each quarter? Or, like, there has to be some thought to that, right? I, I'm, I'm very curious about that. Yeah, I do have to tamper down our committee sometimes. Um, thankfully, though, I'm always able to look at numbers kind of ahead of, of the committee and go, okay, this is our budget for the year. This is how much dollars and asks we have just in the applications submitted. And so I'm very upfront with the committee and we kind of lead off that way going, hey, a reminder that this is our budget for the year ahead. This is how much we have in asks currently for consideration. Let's dive into your recommendations and your evaluations. And we total it up at the end. And there's sometimes where you're not giving 100% of what was asked. You've been asked for $50,000, which is really outside of the range for us personally at Express. Our average gifts are anywhere between $2,500 and $15,000. Again, and that's going with smaller gifts to a larger number of organizations. But in that aspect, it's like, maybe we got a $50,000 ask and it's a great program. We can do 10. And, and so that'll affect there's, you know, it varies. And I'm sure a lot of people are sitting at home right now, listening to this, nodding their heads going, yes, yes. I've asked for money and have gotten a portion of it. And sometimes is a portion better than nothing at all. That's a whole other conversation to have, but um, no, we're just, we're pretty mindful of dollars and we don't pocket that and it's worked so far. <laughs> That's, do we want to, uh, cue the question from the audience? Yeah, I saw that come through. Thank you, Chase, for your question. Before we jump to Chase's question, um, I have one more thing that is like a burning question in my mind and I will forget Please. to ask it if I don't <laughs> ask you. Um, we've talked a lot about this, like, uh, omnipotent committee and how amazing they are. Can you talk to us a little bit about how someone gets on that committee and what is the expectation of them? Do they go through like um, any kind of training? Do they know exactly what Express is wanting or thinking about? How do you prepare them to do that job? Yeah. So thank you for that question. Yes. I brag on that committee a lot, but I'm really proud of this committee. This was something that 
I didn't want to be solely responsible for in making decisions. I didn't want to ever be accused of there being a bias, um, whether known or not. I just, I wanted it to be fair and equitable funding and our employees drive that. So what better way to have this committee of employees? I actually start hunting down, chasing, vetting, whatever you want to call it, our employees about six months in advance of an actual starting term. And that's for a lot of different reasons. One, I kind of come with a wish list of people that I want to get to know in the company or want to engage in the company, or maybe their management, their vice president, their mentor, whoever in the company has reached out and said, hey, I really want this person to get involved with the company a little bit more. Or maybe I've had the rare option of a couple of employees going, I love what you're doing and I want to be a part of that. And can I be a part of that, please? So it's it's a mixture, but I have a list and I sit down with our executive leadership team and they've got their list and we kind of narrow it down to our top however many candidates, maybe three or five. And then I actually approach their vice president first because obviously I'm going to be oh. taking away some of their time yeah. and in their roles. Um, I always, I'm upfront and going, hey, on a quarterly basis, it's about eight hours of their time. And, and physically, you know, being away from their desk and, and other opportunities, involvements, a lot of stuff is evenings and weekends, actually, believe it or not. But as far as like giving their time to evaluate these grant requests, that's probably about eight hours of their quarter in this process. And so I go to the vice president, I say, hey, I'd really like to poach somebody from your team to be a part of this here's the commitment, here's the requirements, are you okay with that? Once they sign off on it, then I go to that employee and I engage them and I say, hey, I'd really like to approach you about this. Would you be interested? We have further conversations. I give them kind of the same spiel, here's the commitment, et cetera. And then I actually give them the names of all previous or current committee members and say, please reach out to at least one or two. Very Get nice. their perspective, hear from them, what they took away, what they liked, what they didn't like about it. And then come back to me with any questions you have. And inevitably, the one question I get is, I don't I don't really know anything about philanthropy or corporate giving or nonprofits. Is that okay? And I go, that's what makes you an asset. Actually, the fact that you're learning. I love all- that. that. And so awesome. with our fourth quarter meeting, they come in uh, completely cold. They don't get any of the advanced packet or information, but they come into that fourth quarter meeting they don't get to be a part of the decision-making process, but they kind of just get to view and audit and ask as many questions as they want. And then I give them kind of that scapegoat going, all right, it's a, you can, you can back out now if you want to back out and no harm, no foul, or if you're in it, awesome. We'll schedule an onboarding call and walk you through our application system and all that other stuff. And we'll hit the ground running in January. And, and thankfully no one's, no one's backed out yet. So that's good. Yeah, I I love that so much because I think that so the, us who are inundated in the nonprofit world forget that there are people who aren't fully aware of the nonprofit sector and what it does. And when you brought up the post-COVID community enhancement investment, hearing that, that seems like such a great idea. But I don't think a panel or a committee of nonprofit people would have thought to fund that uh, post-COVID. So I I think that's very unique. And I love it because essentially these employees become storytellers. 
I, I don't have, to, I mean, if I'm, if I'm bragging on what we're doing, I feel like I'm talking about my job. If they're bragging on what we're doing, they're telling a story. They really are getting excited. They're going back to their teams, their departments, their friends, their family, talking about what Express is doing in the community and how. I often say, at least here in Oklahoma City, we've got, hands down, probably the greatest nonprofit sector, but people either don't know that nonprofit organization exists or they don't know how to access your services. And so if I have somebody in a department that I'll give an example, we had an employee that was in need of hearing aids. And even though our insurance is pretty darn good over here at Express, there was still a cost associated with it that they just, they couldn't do on their budget. And an employee who happened to be on the philanthropic committee said, have you heard of Hearts for Hearing? It's an organization that we've started engaging with and here's what they do. That employee referred the other employee that's, that's what it's about. Like that, when you go back to that question, Lindsay, of saying, what gets you out of bed in the morning? That's what gets me out of bed. That's exciting. That means I've done my job. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to, so we had a question from one of our, our masterclass folks today, um, Chase Mary. Thanks for joining us, Chase. And Chase's question gets back to the timeline piece. Yes. So Chase wants to know, would the third quarter request recommendation be best for current year don- donations or next calendar year? So we are, let's see, it's July, 2023. So we're technically in the third quarter right now. So if someone is bringing you an ask or bringing the committee and ask Jessica <laughs> this quarter, would it be an ask for some time between now and September or would it be for 2024? Sure. That's a great question. Thank you for that, Chase. For Express, our quarterly funding cycles are full, true 90-day funding cycles. So that application closed July 5th. We'll be notifying by October 1st. So if you have something that happens between October 1st and December 31st, then yes, possibly. More likely than not, though, third quarter and fourth quarter are looking ahead at the 2024 year. Awesome. Thank you for that, Jessica. Okay. I I think it's time we shift to big picture. Uh, We've been... (laughs) granular for a little while here. Yeah. I do have one more thing before we go there. I'm okay. so sorry. I have what just, you know, one more thing. Um, I, and I was, cause I was writing this down as you were talking, Jessica, and this is, you know, we talk about community centric fundraising and, and why that is so um, specifically important to us. And one of the tenants of community centric fundraising that we also see other donors put an emphasis on like uh, private foundations, for example, mm-hmm is private foundations really want to see nonprofit partnerships. And especially in a market like the one we're in right now, where there is decreased giving, it does feel like the pot's a little bit smaller and maybe that trend is going to continue into 2024. How much of a priority or or how important is it in corporate philanthropy to see nonprofit partnerships, coalitions, things like that in bringing you funding requests? It's huge. And I think it's a question you're going to start seeing on a lot more grant applications. Mm, It's definitely one we ask on ours. Who are you collaborating with and how? Because we like to see that you're staying. Primarily, we like to see that you're staying in your mission. We know that your organization is going to identify services that need to be provided to your clients, but those might not necessarily be within your mission. So if you can collaborate with other organizations to provide those services 
still stay within your mission, but really utilize and partner with that, that actually kind of benefits you all as an organization. It also is really a positive to us as a funder going, wow, well, we're also working with that organization that you're collaborating with and we're funding them. And so it makes us feel a little bit better when we can't necessarily give the $50,000 grant to go, well, that we're funding here, we're funding here and we're funding here. And all three of them are working together. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the power of the dollar, um, so to speak. So how frequently would you say right now you're getting applications that are centered around partnership? Because uh, I'll be honest, I, I definitely see that this is something we talk to our clients about in foundations and even individual donors care about, but I don't know that this is something we've centered for corporate philanthropy. Right. On average, if I had to guess, I'd say probably like three out of five are collaborating with other organizations. It's very rare. In fact, when we see one that's blank, that like puts not applicable or has only one or two, we kind of go, oh, wonder why that is. Now that's not a bad thing. Some organizations are in a position where they just, they don't have the ability to collaborate or another organization doesn't exist to collaborate with them. That does not in any way, shape, or mean, mean take away from what you're doing or, or way how you're getting funded, nothing like that. But it does, it does allow us the opportunity to engage with you guys better and go, okay, so we see that you have the opportunity to collaborate, but you're not, can we help? Yeah. I want to clarify something because it just occurred to me that I, I think that I actually mean something a little bit different than what we're talking about now. Okay. I hear what you're saying around, we, our application asks if nonprofits are collaborating with other nonprofits. What I'm asking about specifically is, are you getting applications from nonprofits to partner? Like we are asking oh. you for $5,000 or $15,000 since that's your max to go in in conjunction with this other nonprofit or this coalition of nonprofits to collectively tackle this specific issue. Forgive me for misunderstanding. No, no, I don't think I I explained myself correctly. Actually, we don't. We did in COVID. Mm -hmm. We did in COVID because a lot of organizations were like, hey, we can come together and do a lot of things. And in fact, I think you saw, um, at least here in Oklahoma City, there was a coalition of funders that decided yeah. to pull their money together to help that was awesome. make that impact. Uh, but no, since, since 2020 and maybe just barely in 2021, that's not a trend we're seeing. Good to know. Thank you for, for going over that. Oh, okay, thank you Jonathan. for clarifying. <laughs> thank you. So, so we have about a little more than 30 minutes or so left and, and you had that great kind of queue up at the beginning, Lindsay. So I want to shift the conversation from the the sort of uh, tactical how you give and what those processes are, because I know from speaking with Jessica before this, and I know from knowing Lindsay for a long time, that um, y'all are nonprofit philanthropy fundraising nerds. Um, you are some of the few people that when you read for fun, you read about philanthropy and fundraising and, and those types of things. So I think that we have a great resource here to talk about the sector in general, some of the trends and some of the things that we're seeing right now that may become trends or not. 
So I want to take advantage of, of your um, nerding out on some <laughs> of these things and, and maybe see if we can steer the conversation that way. You want me to dive in? I'm sitting yeah, here. Yeah, dive in. This is this is y'all's <laughs> arena. So I'm gonna step back. I'm on edge now. You said data nerd. Let's go. <laughs> so one of the areas I want to dive in today, Jessica, is specifically around corporate social responsibility. So you mentioned earlier, you know, how important it is to know if you're talking to the marketing department or if you're talking to community engagement. Corporate social responsibility for a long time was the conversation to try to be engaged with um, inside a major corporation. Um, I mean, we've given a a whole bunch, frankly, of CSR trainings and and workshops um, that basically kind of explored it from from it um, being initially a corporation's, um, what's the right word, being their concern with the environment in which they are producing products and and being a part of it, it really being more uh, an environmental conversation and then slowly shifting over the years to, well, actually how, how are we a corporate citizen in the community in which we reside and, and how do we play nice with our neighbors? Because of cutbacks and various things, we've seen major corporations um, across the United States completely shutting down their corporate social responsibility departments, uh, integrating those employees into the HR function or having them laid off completely. And for philanthropic folks, that that looks a little scary on the outside because to us, it signals the message, hey, we're not quite centering this in the way that we did before. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear from you just context around this shift that we're seeing happening and what it really does mean in practical terms for nonprofits who want to partner with corporations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you, first of all, for defining corporate social responsibility, because that almost feels like a buzzword anymore, so to speak, CSR. I mean, when I first, you know, was getting back into the nonprofit sector and the side of funding and we're talking about corporate social responsibility, if I was getting to engage with larger corporations like Target or Starbucks or Hilton Hotels, it was, well, how green are we being? It was that sustainability aspect of, are we recycling? Are we doing this? Are we providing uh, biodegradable paper goods in our break room for that matter, which yes, Express does. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's it's changed from that concept of being how green are we to are we being a good neighbor? Are we making an investment back into the communities where we exist? I think the phrase as a whole has just again, it, I think it was a buzzword there for a while, and I think we're getting away from that. Yes, some corporations are absorbing that into their human resources. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It still exists at least in some capacity. Um, But overall, when we talk about, does it mean that we're starting to see our roles in philanthropy differently? I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to say that's actually a positive thing because it means that we're getting more engaged. We're not putting a specific term on it. Like, well, we, we have this requirement. We have this responsibility to do this. Mm. It's, Hey, look, we're doing this because we want to do this. We're not required to do it. It's, we want to be a part of this. We want to move forward doing this 
For some companies, that is, uh, again, because we're looking at sales-based on corporations, for some companies, that's going to be very employee-driven with employee matching gifts. That's going to be very um, campaign-driven on, you know, like your Allied Arts or your United Way or um, Amplify Austin, these larger kind of giving campaigns, employee giving campaigns. So a lot of the funding is going to be more employee driven in that aspect with regards to, hey, are you going to designate X amount per paycheck? And if so, how do you want to designate that? That's kind of what it's moving to for a lot of corporations. And at the same time, I'm really excited that there's more corporations taking on roles like mine and saying, we want to identify somebody that will get out into the community and roll up their sleeves and get to know these organizations, do the volunteer experience so that they can tell other potential volunteers, hey, here's what to expect. Here's what's, where to park, what to wear, what you're going to be doing, how long you're going to be on your feet, all that kind of thing. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that we're seeing the phrase corporate social responsibility disappear. It's how companies are re-engaging that role. That is fascinating. Uh, fascinating. What I hear you saying there is that in creating a buzzword, um, we kind of othered the entire concept of corporate social responsibility. And by folding it into the HR function, we effectively accomplish what I think a lot of us wish we were accomplishing in, for example, uh, DEIB efforts where there is you know, an entire separate department that has been set aside for diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. And in the process, what has happened is that a lot of that has been othered. I see I see kind of uh, a line drawn between those things, which is fascinating because I had not at all thought of it that way. And I appreciate that context. Uh, and it also brings up another thing that I want to talk about, which is um, in 2021, as I mentioned earlier, we saw a nearly 24% increase in giving from the 2020 big drop back up to 21 billion. And as I mentioned, that was really split between social justice funding and direct uh, uh, health and, and human and health services. We have not seen the level of commitment sustained to social justice funding since that time. There's definitely still a commitment there. But I think it was a fever pitch in 2021. There was a lot of response to things that were happening out in the real world. Can you walk us through what support for social justice initiatives might look like from a sustainable perspective moving forward? Do you think the 2021 spike was an overcorrection or perhaps like an emotional response that was not ever going to be sustainable? Walk us through your thoughts around that. Thank you, first of all, for using the word sustainable. Mm -hmm. I love that in framing. Yes, in 2021, I think it was um, C-suite level guilt. I mean, let's let's be honest. It was great. That's great term. I I think it was an immediate reaction. It wasn't a response. It was a reaction to this is happening and we need to be a part of it. And again, that that comes from the top down, and it certainly did for Express. It was our our executive leadership team going, we need to make some significant gifts here. And I'm grateful, though, that they approached it in a manner where branding and getting our name out there was not at all a part of it. It was doing it because in the moment it was the right thing to do, but it was reactive. 
then the role is, okay, well now, now we need to make that sustainable. How do we do that? So let's educate ourselves as a funder. Let's start having those engagements. And actually what was kind of disappointing and it took a good year to kind of bounce back was we had given an unsolicited gift to a very large organization that has a great local presence, but is very well nationally known. And so with the local organization, at least, I mean, it was a tax receipt. It was a thank you letter, but I'm pretty sure in 2020 when and 2021, when all of that was going on, A, they're working remotely from home. B, they're just trying to stay afloat with the flood of stuff that's coming in. They didn't know how to engage. They didn't know how to follow up. And that was, that was a missed thing. And so for me as a funder, I'm going, well, okay, let's be honest. Let's look at the elephant in the room. I'm a middle-class middle-aged white woman giving out money on behalf of my company. If I want to get my foot in the door at a black led organization or an Asian American led organization or a Latino Hispanic community organization, there's not a lot of trust there because it really has been write a check, fill a table, or let's put a bandaid on it and walk away because we feel better about it. That's not always going to be the case. But I learned the hard way in having these conversations with people in those communities going, well, Jessica, it's not you personally. It's just we we don't trust this aspect of giving because of that. And so maybe that's why we didn't try to engage or follow up because we don't think you're actually going to follow through. It's, it's two aspects there. It's, it's them and us. And um, so it can go a lot of different ways, but a year after giving this gift to this specific organization, I had an opportunity to get my foot in the door again and go, Hey, listen, we gave a gift and we know that you guys are doing a lot in the areas of workforce development and criminal justice reform and making sure that people have hope and value in a job and and not just a job, but a career. How can we be a part of that? And so it was having to both of us falling on our swords, so to speak, and letting putting pride aside and saying, we need to have this conversation because we want to engage with you guys what is the way you want us to engage with you? So I think when we talk about DEIB and that spike in giving, again, that was kind of, you know, a reactive uh, response rather than a, a proactive or a, an actual response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so I, I think we're growing they're in saying that, you know, we can build this back up. It's just going to look a little different. What do you think from a sustainability perspective, you know, if it is, if it is unrealistic to expect 10 billion of the $20 billion coming from the corporate sector to flowing into social justice every year. Yeah. I mean, I'm not necessarily asking you for like a specific number, but what is a more sustainable approach to partnering with corporate philanthropy? Does it look in social justice? Does it look the same like it does for everybody else at this point? And, you know, some of what we've talked about in cultivating relationships and understanding what the calendar looks like and understanding what the partnership opportunities look like. Does it look the same or is social justice kind of a, its own uh, uh, kind of a, a special area? Because frankly, there is, a lot of CEO level, a lot of white guilt associated with giving that happens in that space. Yeah. A good question. And I don't, I don't have a one size fits all answer 
yeah to that unfortunately um I think it depends on the organization because again we're going to find that it's going to be mission and values driven we're a company that puts people to work and so do we feel like everybody has an opportunity at fair chance employment and I use the phrase fair chance rather than second chance because sometimes it is a third fourth or 17th absolutely so um while I can't speak for corporation as a whole in that regard, I, I think it's just going to be very conversational and it's going to be very community driven. What impacts the community that you're in, that that corporation is in, that that funder is in, that your organization is in. Um, yeah, that's not, that's not answering your question. I feel really bad about that, but it's such a, there's such a broad answer to it that I just can't drill it down. I'm sorry. So I want to unpack this a little more. I know we've we've got some more things to talk about, but this is such an important uh, issue in our society today Mm -hmm. in general that I want to approach this maybe uh, and ask a different question. So some of what you talked about was the trust piece Mm -hmm. uh, with communities of color that uh, doesn't exist with with corporations or yeah. or large philanthropy, which makes a lot of sense. We talk at Right on Fundraising a lot about the nonprofit industrial complex or the idea that the nonprofit sector is just another mechanism for capitalism to insulate itself from falling apart uh, due to inequity. And... So I would understand why communities of color who have been the victims of unfettered capitalism for so long would not uh, trust a corporation or or wealthy people coming in and saying, here's a ton of money. We're here to help you. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense. What I'm curious about is, is to talk a little bit about your committee approach again, is how much representation from those communities are on your committee that could be a mechanism for that trust building and more sustainable uh, partnerships with with those communities. Absolutely. And I'm really happy to report that our committee at Current is four men and one woman. Um, We have uh, three men of those four that are of color and different ethnicities and backgrounds. Uh, they're not all the same. And it, great. And again, I love that because it does play into perspective on a few things. And that's part of the reason they're approached is saying, you know, you two are not the same. You two are not identical. You're going to come with different perspectives. You're going to come with different aspects. And that's um, something I do pride myself on. And I'm very grateful that we do have a diverse workforce here at Express that I can pull from in that regard. We only in 2022 actually developed a DE&IB position within our HR department. And she has been a fantastic resource and has actually helped open some of those doors. I've been trying to get my foot in, but um, I don't, I haven't felt the need to go to her and be like, Hey, help me identify these employees and this and that. Um, while it should certainly play into how I select that committee or how that committee is comprised at the end of the day, it's, are we bringing in diverse perspectives? I, I personally look at diversity as differences of opinions and mindsets 
not always color, ethnicity, religious background, whatever, although that certainly helps when we can all come together and have that conversation. But for me personally, diversity is difference of opinion and the more the merrier because it it provides good conversation. That's so great because I think that that is how we, those representation at all levels in philanthropy, the nonprofit sector in corporations is how we move away from maybe some of those more tokenized gifts that we saw uh, in response to the murder of George Floyd and and at least white people's awareness of, of some of these inequities. I think that's how we move away from that to a more sustainable form of philanthropy that still values social justice, but does it in a long-term, more sustainable way. Right. And something to keep in mind too, again, I referenced the fact that I'm fortunate we do have a diverse workforce here at Express that I can pull from to make that committee possible. That's not always going to be the case for everybody. Right. Yeah. I was actually just trying to think through as you were talking, you know, this is, I feel like in so many ways, Express has done a really excellent job of centering community-centered tactics and fundraising, even, even if that wasn't like intentional or if you guys knew what those things were. Thank you. Um, and I'm sitting here thinking, so what about all the corporations that are not doing it this well? Because <laughs> there's, exactly. there's going to be a lot of those. <laughs> Um, and I think what I, I want to talk about a little bit here is um, including social justice, but opening this up to other sectors as well. This year, um, there, so with the Chronicle of Philanthropy, Philanthropy, excuse me, put out a wonderful article that detailed the Giving USA results. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they had this little chart, and I just loved it because, again, right, we just, we're just going to hammer it home here. We are data nerds. But they had this wonderful chart embedded within the story that said, here are all the different uh, um, uh, sectors of nonprofit giving. Here's arts and humanities, health and human services, foundations. You know, there's typically like eight of them. Yeah. Uh, And it showed growth in a number of different areas. And then when you clicked the chart over into adjusted for inflation, it was the most depressing thing I've ever seen. Absolutely. and there were only two areas in the entire chart, everything like bottomed out, but only two areas actually had any true growth when you looked at inflation adjusted dollars. And those were international affairs, which was largely attributed to a lot of gifts flowing uh, over to Ukraine and to things happening around the world mm-hmm. and foundation giving and foundation giving is largely donor advised funds, which is, boy, is that a topic for a whole different day <laughs> talking about community centered fundraising. So really every other sector of philanthropy that is typically funded took a hit last year. So what I want to know a little bit, I've I've heard you mention all kinds of different areas of philanthropy today, lots of different things that are funded in a market like we're entering right now, where we know that, um, so for example, during 2020, arts and humanities just took a huge hit um, and then had uh, a total market correction plus 7% the next year, like totally made a comeback from a, from a data perspective. From a corporate philanthropy standpoint, I think the stereotype, and I definitely want you to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the stereotype is that 
health and human services tend to be a better fit for corporate giving than pretty much any other type of nonprofit mission. Talk to us about what types of nonprofit organizations tend to get funded. Are is there a certain type of organization? Um, you know, there's and I I there's environments and animals, there's veterans organizations, there's lots of different types of organizations. Are there certain types of organizations that flat out are just not a good fit for corporate philanthropy? Sure. A, I think that depends on the corporation and and going back to mission. Uh, B, you're not wrong on stereotype, uh, definitely. And I think health and human services is that category because it is so broad. Oh, it's huge. Um, it's it's huge and it's all encompassing and it's kind of this umbrella phrase that we can use and and so I think it's, you know, yes, that's where it's going to fit. Um, Boeing as a corporation, obviously veterans are a great mission fit for them. So they are focusing more on mission uh, driven veteran funding. They are also in STEM and STEAM. And so their education focus is going to be STEM and STEAM. Community enhancement, I think, again, goes to how certain corporations are defining it. And sometimes it can be a feel good rather than just thinking about community. I mean, we look at community enhancement because, again, being a company that puts people to work, people want to move to a community where there's something offered, where there is right. a way to spend your downtime and and have arts and parks and a zoo or a science museum or any of these things. So but yeah, I think overall health and human services is the category and the buzzword that you're going to hear the most because it's the broadest and kind of all encompassing and a lot of different things can fall into that. Um, we can identify a school here in Oklahoma that serves homeless kids. And yes, it is education, but it is also providing caseworkers and social services for the kids and their families. So it also falls under health and human services. It, again, it's just it's the broadest category and kind of the fit all for everything with that regard. Um, Yeah. I, I too looked at those numbers from that giving USA report and, and the article in philanthropy, if you have an opportunity to put any of those links out to your community of, of listeners or watchers, viewers here today with this masterclass, certainly put that out there because it's great data and it's good to see. And yes, inflation just, Kills us all. Um, but you Ate think everybody's lunch about, literally know, last year. Food pantries or organization homeless services and all of that, their costs have gone up to provide those mm-hmm. services, whether it's buying a pair of jeans or putting, you know, 10 bags of rice in a pantry, cost is going up, their cost is going up, their operating costs are going up, their salary costs are going up. So yeah, inflation has really, really killed us all. Um Do you- Do you think that because everyone is so cognizant now, I think for a while it was, is it or isn't it, right? But now everybody pretty much knows, yeah, there's a very real impact because of inflation. Do you see corporations adjusting what they give? You know, if you, let's say, I don't know um, what percent of sales like informs the express budget, but if if inflation now has had you know from an eleven to fifteen percent impact, corporations adjusting what they're giving 
um, to help kind of keep up with that inflation. Budget-wise, I wish I could say yes. I would love more yeah. money <laughs> to do that. Um, no, that falls to me, and that falls to how we allocate those funds and budget. And again, it goes back to relationships with the organizations we're working with, which I understand not every corporate funder has the time or the bandwidth or the opportunity to develop relationships, and that that kind of disheartens me. And again, that's another sit box for another day <laughs> because mm-hmm. I believe that. Um, our giving is done best when it's relational and it's trust-based and it's focusing on the community good. Um, But with that regard, it's having that conversation around have your costs increased. And I'll go back to that example of the Memorial Marathon here in Oklahoma City. Our sponsorship has, has been pretty on point for the same you know, year over year for the past few years, but having that conversation with their director this year and going, hey, because of inflation, because hotel costs are increasing or because uh, production costs are increasing, does our sponsorship need to increase? Mm-hmm. And that's a fair conversation. It needs to be had. It needs to be addressed. But again, that's money-wise, that's for me to be aware of, not necessarily um, our auditors or our CFO going, Hey, here's your budget this year. And we, we raised it half a percent for you because of inflation. They don't think that way. I have to. I see. Well, I love that you pointed out specifically that that's a conversation. And I, I completely agree. I don't think that you can submit in an application and say, Hey, we're submitting an application for 10% more because of all, all our costs increase. I think that you, that is a conversation, a person to person conversation that needs to happen before an application is submitted. It's cultivation. It's old school cultivation is is still so relevant to everything we've talked about here today. Well, I, um, I'm, I'm disappointed to say we have about 10 minutes left. I've I've got a final question. I want to put my vote into, to having Jessica back. This has been a really great (laughs) conversation. So future (laughs) podcast, we need to have Jessica back. I, I feel like we could go on for hours uh, talking about philanthropy and, and fundraising. But I want to move on to our final question before we uh, get out of here. And that is about the, the United Way and, and federated campaigns that I would say used to be extremely popular. I think that every corporation and every community was giving to their United Way just maybe a decade ago. But we've seen that sort of community chess model struggle over the past 10 years as uh, folks are spending less time at a single job than they used to. And how do you, how do corporations, how do you prioritize those types of federated campaigns like United Way? Are they still an important part of your strategy? How do you decide which campaigns and coalitions to invest in? I think there's two answers to that. And one is it's employee driven. If you have enough employees saying we want to be a part of this and be a part of an employee campaign, then leadership is going to listen and take note and and be proactive in that regard. The other aspect to it, especially with larger corporations like ours, that is a fully franchised company across North America and a few other countries. Um, it comes down to marketing and communications. It's a it's a marketing campaign uh, for years, and I'll I'll throw Express under the bus. Our our social aspect to it was partnering with Children's Miracle Network 
And to a regard that can be in reality, we were a very small fish in a very big pond where that came into play. And not all of our franchisees had a children's miracle network in their community. Not all of them identified to it saying, you know, we, we think it's a great concept, but we don't, we don't have any kids impacted by that. So it doesn't have as much meaning to us. Um, which again is where this goes back to being very employee driven campaigns like United Weights, uh, United Way or Amplify Austin or here locally in Oklahoma City, we have Allied Arts. A lot of those community chests are going to be employee driven. Some companies don't have the ability to um, silo a portion of or a percentage of their sales for corporate giving. So that employee driven campaign or a community chest like that is a better option for them because it's a buy-in from their employees to participate in those. I think uh, what really hurt a lot of those organizations, especially when we're going to like talk about Goodwill and Salvation Army and that kind of thing even, is a few years ago, an article was notoriously put out that talked about CEO salaries. Oh my gosh, this article. At the national level. And so people immediately were like, oh, I mean, I even had an employee once that when we did a we we did a workforce readiness gift to our local Goodwill chapter here in Oklahoma City. They came to me and I can't believe we're funding Goodwill and blah, blah, blah. And do you know what their CEO makes? And I go, yeah, but do you know that that report was issued this many years ago? And that was not even their national president. You know, that was not their national president. That was a president at this chapter. And here's the circumstances. And we have to get past the headline and also the detail can we have a conversation about how nonprofit CEOs are CEOs who deserve to be Just fairly like compensated and should yes. get nonprofit professionals yes yes yes, yes. take away this like scarcity complex about paying the folks who are leading organizations yeah. would you say the same thing if it was a, a corporate entity where the CEO is making that much no Exactly. Wouldn't. Exactly. So, Still on point, Lindsay, well, and I'm with you, Jonathan. He's given snaps. Yes. I love that. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. But I think that's when we talk about these community chess models, I think articles like that, where people don't actually get into the data and don't dive a little deeper, the the surface level perception is what's really hurt some of those. Um, from a funding perspective, personally. I have nothing against any of those, but we don't have employees going, hey, we want to be a part of this campaign because to employees, it feels like they're being told where they mm-hmm. have to give and what they have to support. And, and so from my perspective, that hurts a little bit. And so we don't necessarily do those type of campaigns. Also from a funding perspective, because we do work with a lot of nonprofit partners that are United Way partner agencies and stuff. Um if you're not if you're not familiar with it, United Way does a blackout during their annual campaign giving where their partner agencies are not allowed to fundraise for themselves. They have to fundraise on be part on part of behalf of United Way. I personally I I struggle with that just a little. Um, but that's just sure. me. That's not everybody. But I, I think all of those factors play into why we're seeing that community chest model kind of dwindle away is Employees don't want to be told. Employees want to be given a choice. Corporations have the ability now to do a little bit more than just one thing. And uh, especially with national 
networks or national models versus local chapters, it goes back to that small fish, big pond. Are we actually making an impact in our local community? That makes a lot of sense. Um, Well, Jessica, uh, I want to thank you today. Like Jonathan said, yes, this has been great. Wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we hop off for today, specific to Express Employment, because I know some of the folks on our call today or joining from the podcast are joining specifically because they want to learn more about how to engage with your organization. Do you have any tips, tricks, advice for someone wanting to uh, partner and get more engaged with um, your employees? Awesome. First of all, thank you so much for letting me be a part of this conversation. I am blessed to get to do what I do and meet so many nonprofit organizations in the process. And thank you for allowing me to kind of own my expertise and provide some some feedback, at least from my perspective. Um, Obviously, you've also heard me say, I would love to take a few corporations by the shoulders and kind of give them a good shake and go, let's talk about how you're funding and why you're doing it wrong. because I'm a huge advocate for relationships in, in the funding sector. And um, so to that regard, one tip just in general, no matter if you're here in Oklahoma City or you're elsewhere listening to this podcast or participating in this masterclass, if you have a chance to identify your contact person at a corporation, at a foundation, it doesn't matter who you're talking to, ask them for five minutes they may end up giving you 30 and it may be the best conversation you've ever had. Keep in mind, we're not always going to be able to do coffee or lunch. It may just be a phone call. Um, Obviously, sometimes you're going to pick up the phone and go, hey, do you have five minutes? And if they have it, they'll give it to you. If not, ask to schedule time. Ask for a conversation because it's going to save them time in the long run. It's going to save you time in the long run. So so, so hold their feet to the fire, make them ha- give you at least five minutes. And, and I try to do that. And if, if I have blown somebody off and I have not given you five minutes, my apologies, call me out on it by all means. If you're in the Oklahoma city area and you're wanting to get engaged with express employment international and our corporate giving aspect here in the community, we have a website expresspros.com. Click on about us and go to community. There will be information there. Um, also for those of you joining nationally on this conversation, there is information on how to engage your local express franchise office in, in getting involved with what you're doing in your community But again, here in Oklahoma City, we talk about uh, on that website what we do fund, what we don't fund, what our quarterly funding cycle looks like, and then how to access that online application portal. Perfect. Thank you. It's like like you have rehearsed it and knew exactly what to say. (laughs) Well, I tell you what, you might run out of five-minute blocks. You heard it here. (laughs) Call Jessica out on it. If she did not give you five minutes, you are going to get your five minutes back. Well, thank you so much for being here once again. This this has been a great podcast. Really enjoyable. I really uh, love the conversation. I want to take a second and plug our next masterclass slash podcast so you can mark your calendars and be sure to be there. On September 20th, we are going to talk about how to earn donor trust for leaders that don't have time to cultivate. Very important topic there. You know it's important 
you know who to call or who to schedule lunch with or who to get a five-minute block of time from. But making time to cultivate relationships with donors seems to keep falling to the bottom of your ever-growing to-do list. You are not alone. Join Lindsay Jordan, our founder and CEO here at Ride On Fundraising, and our special guests as we discuss the cultivation strategies that have worked best for busy nonprofit leaders, as well as those best practices that are just unfeasible for small teams. September 20th, join us for our masterclass. Well, Jonathan, best of luck today at Fundraising Palooza. Break a leg. Um, everybody, if uh, if you haven't joined, we're doing a tech soup, a webinar with tech soup tomorrow on grant writing. This has like a thousand people who have registered. This will be the biggest online party we've had in a while. Appreciate everybody jumping on the call. Again, a round of applause and emojis for Jessica Gilmore. We appreciate your time today. Have a great rest of your week and we will talk to you all soon. Thanks so much, you guys. I enjoyed it. Thank you.